You're listening to Short Run, WBUR's home for special, limited, long-form and narrative audio series from across Boston's NPR station. We're sharing a five-part series called The Power of Populism from WBUR's On Point. If you want more from the excellent team at On Point, jump over to the On Point feed and hit subscribe or follow. Thanks for listening. Here's The Power of Populism. But they go further and further and further into economic slavery. Populism. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. Long a force in American history. Whose property has been confiscated in its entirety. And whose altars in Christ have been desecrated. The dictionary defines populism as a political approach that strives to appeal to ordinary people. When the concerns of foreigners take precedence over the needs of Americans, our government is betraying us and has become illegitimate. Who feel that their concerns are disregarded. We're thinking of having a Chicago Tea Party in July. (laughs) President Obama, are you listening? Who feel they're ignored by established elite groups. In left-wing populism, it goes to the economic elites. Occupy Wall Street. Occupy Wall Street. Wall Street. Wall Street. When we talk about wealth distribution, oh my goodness, can't talk about that. In cultural populism, it goes toward minorities. And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. Resentment is at the heart of this populist drive. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists. Populism is also... To be closer to the people or closer to the popular will. The forgotten men and women of our country. So many of you felt like you've just simply been forgotten. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Welcome to an On Point special series, The Power of Populism. Because populism unifies the people by negativity. Its global reach. It's authoritarian danger. I am your voice. And it's democratic promise. Populism is what we desperately need, what we have to have, and what we can't have. Episode one, what makes a leader a populist? Well, On Point News Analyst Jack Beatty is here. Hello, Jack. Hello, Megna. So, Jack, how far back in U.S. history do we have to go in order to find the roots of the word and even the concept of populism? Uh, to the late 19th century um, and to the founding in 1892 of the People's Party. Uh, it was uh, originally that was going to be the title, but, it's offic- but it quickly became known as the Populist Party. That was because someone objected that while you could say someone was a Republican or a Democrat, you'd gulp if you called him a people's. So a friendly Democratic leader suggested with a Latin education, suggested populist. And that stuck. Of course, the objection to that was, uh, well, they'll call us pops. And sure enough, within days, newspapers in America were calling the People's Party pops. So how long did that first populist movement in the United States last, Jack? 
Well, it didn't last long. It had a buildup, though, that was so promising. Uh, you know, in the long ripple wake of the Civil War, saw hard times for the farmer. Commodity prices fell off a cliff. A corn, which sold for 45 cents a bushel in 1868, went for 10 cents a bushel in 1888. In 1877, just as the country was recovering from the great railroad strike of that year, which saw the National Guard using bayonets and gatling guns against workers from Baltimore to St. Louis, in 1877, 14 men and women met in a cabin in Lampasas County, Texas, and began the Farmers' Alliance. It grew to be the largest mass movement in American history. Within 10 years, every other farmer in Texas belonged. One in four farmers, black and white, in the South belonged. It spread through the Plain States. Its message was carried by 40,000 Alliance lecturers who went and spread the gospel of self-help, we must form cooperatives. We must, uh, and, and rejection of the view that our problem is overproduction. It's not overproduction. We're being fleeced by railroads, by bankers, and so on. And uh, the, they, they created these, these cooperatives, but they were crushed out by corporate interests quickly who wouldn't give them railroad passes, wouldn't allow them on railroads, banks wouldn't give them credit, et cetera, et cetera. So the populist, the Farmers' Alliance, was forced into politics because neither of the other of the two parties, Republicans in the North, Democrats in the South, would uh, address their grievances. Okay, so what I'd like to do, Jack, for the remainder of this first part of our conversation is talk about some of America's most noted populist leaders through time. And we've got to start with William Jennings Bryan. Of course, Jack, as you know, in 1896, he ran for president. And at the Democratic National Convention that year, Bryan electrified the crowd with his famed Cross of Gold speech. Of course, the original wasn't recorded, but Bryan made an audio recording of it later in the 1920s. They tell us that the great cities are in favor of the gold standard. We reply that the great cities rest upon our broad and fertile prairies. Burn down your cities and leave our farms, and your cities will spring up again as if by magic. But destroy our farms, and the grass will grow in the streets of every city of the country. So, Jack, tell us about uh, the importance of Brian. Well, in that speech, he, in fact, he concluded that speech by the famous line you quoted, you shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. And he held out his arms in the uh, cruciform shape. And when he did so, uh, a cry went up from the, uh, from the audience, quote, down with gold, down with the hook-nosed Shylocks of Wall Street, down with Christ-killing gold bugs. Uh, anti-Semitism was part of, was, a, was an element of populism all through. Not a dominant one, but it was there. Brian, of course, wanted an expanded currency. He wanted inflation. He wanted free silver coinage that would uh, essentially allow more money in the, in the 
system that would raise prices for farmers. Of course, it would mm-hmm. raise prices for consumers, too. And that was the problem he lost out in, uh, in northern cities. He was an interesting man, 36 years old. They called him a son of toil. In fact, he was the son of a prosperous Nebraska judge. But from early on, at four years old, he started giving little speeches to his playmates and rhetoric and and great soaring um, uh, oratorical uh, feats. That's that's what he was known for. The Mm. Times said he was an oratorical monomaniac. Mm. Well, so that... uh the undercurrent of anti-Semitism that you noted was also sort of blew out into the open with another populist from uh, the the 30s, Father Coughlin, of course. We heard a little bit of his voice um, in the that introductory set of sound, but I want to move forward um, and uh, into the 1930s through the 60s with two very different versions of American populism. So first of all, uh, here's Senator Huey Long. Um, in December of 1934, calling for the redistribution of wealth in America. Four percent of the American people own 85 percent of the wealth of America. And that over 70 percent of the people of America don't own enough to pay the debts that they owe. How many men ever went to a barbecue? and would let one man take off the table what's intended for nine-tenths of the people to eat. The only way you'll ever be able to feed the balance of the people is to make that man come back and bring back some of that grub he ain't got no business with. So that's Huey Long, perhaps one of the most famous populists of the early 20th century in the United States. Economic populism there. There's also another very profoundly deep strain of populism in America, Jack, as you know, and that has to do with cultural and racial resentment, epitomized by George Wallace. Uh, And here he is in his inaugural address as Alabama governor in 1963 with some famous, or I should say infamous lines. From this cradle of the Confederacy, this very heart of the great Anglo-Saxon Southland, that today we sound the drum for freedom, as have our generation of forebears before us done time and again down through history. And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. Jack, take a second or two to talk about Wallace. Uh, well, his populism, it can, it can sound reminiscent of, um, of Brian's and the populists. He said to his people, you've been treated like doormats long enough. He, ta- he attacked the pointy head, head college professors who can't park a bicycle straight. He, uh, he, he harassed, uh, long, you know, when, when hippies yelled at him from the crowd, he'd say, oh, I thought you were a she. Uh, so he picked up on lots of class resentment. But uh, down deep at the bottom of him was this dark, you know, uh, racism. Mm. It is a comment, though, isn't it, that our system was strong enough in 1968 to reject a racist, and in 2016 we elected one. Hmm. Well, uh, the fact that it seems that there was there's this sort of simultaneous, this Janus-like quality to uh, American populism, where virtually at the same periods of history we have uh, cultural and 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 racial-based populism, and we also have 
economic populism. And I think we're living in one of those moments right now with, of course, you know, former President Donald Trump really um, maximizing that cultural resentment part of, uh, of American populism. And then perhaps on the economic side, uh, there is Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. Here's a moment from a, a Senate committee hearing where he points out what he believes is the fact of an American oligarchy. Today in our country, the two wealthiest people now own more wealth than the bottom 42% of our population, 130 million Americans. Two people, 130 million Americans. Anyone who thinks we do not have an oligarchy right here in America is sorely mistaken. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders there. Jack Beatty is with us today, and he's helping us launch episode one in our special series this week called The Power of Populism. Much more when we come back. This is On Point. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and this is episode one of our special series, the power of populism, its global reach, authoritarian danger, and democratic promise. These are the forgotten men and women of our country, and they are forgotten, but they're not going to be forgotten long. These are people who work hard, but no longer have a voice. I am your voice. Donald Trump there at the Republican National Convention in 2016 during his nomination acceptance speech, again, highlighting a classic trait of populist leaders there, presuming that their voice speaks for all. I'm joined today by Jack Beatty. He's On Point's news analyst. And joining us now in the conversation is Nadia Urbanati. She's a professor of political theory at Columbia University and author of many books, including Me, the People, How Populism Transforms Democracy. Professor Urbanati, welcome to On Point. Oh, hello. And also with us is Jan Werner Müller. He's a professor of social sciences and politics at Princeton University, a columnist for The Guardian US and, US and author of many books, including What is Populism? Professor Müller, welcome to On Point. Hello. Well, I wonder if I could start with you, Professor Müller, because in your book, What is Populism? You have this very uh, pointed line. You say, populism is something like a permanent shadow of modern representative democracy and a constant peril. What do you mean? So my understanding of populism is that not everybody who criticizes the powerful is necessarily a populist. Not everybody who, as a presidential candidate, runs against you know, Washington, D.C., which is pretty much what every presidential candidate does, is a populist. Populists are those who claim that they and only they represent what they typically call the real people or also the silent majority. They claim a kind of monopoly of representing the people with the consequence that all other contenders for power are deemed fundamentally illegitimate, corrupt, and to coin a phrase, crooked. And less obviously, that all those who don't agree with the populist's understanding of the real people are basically excluded from the people. So long story short, populism is not just about anti-elitism. 
it's also about anti-pluralism, the tendency to exclude others at the level of party politics, but also at the level of the citizenry themselves. And that's always going to be possible in a democracy as long as we have representation. Somebody can always come along and say, I am the only one who represents the real people. And that always means there is an authoritarian danger, which is also why, with all due respect, I would strongly object to this false equivalence between Sanders and Trump. We, we may not like Sanders' policies for all kinds of reasons. He's not a danger to democracy. Trump really is a populist who goes for the politics of exclusion, who calls every critic un-American, who reduces all politics to questions of belonging, and hence is a threat to democracy. Okay, so Professor Urbanati, before I go to you, let me go back to Jack Beatty really quickly. So, you, you, Jack, you heard Professor Mueller there saying, by definition, part of what a populist is is a danger to democracy. But you actually wanted to include both Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth, Senator Elizabeth Warren in this sort of tradition of American populism. And thinking back to what we just talked about in the previous segment, that the origins of American populism came out of this desire for more you know, economic equality. I mean, do, do those things constitute a danger to democracy, Jack? No, and I don't think the populist movement did at all. It was very unfortunate, however, that uh, McCarthyism in the 50s uh, gave rise to a great uh, sort of uh, neuralgia among American intellectuals toward mass movements. And they looked back in history, Richard Hofstadter notably, and found uh, the shadow of McCarthyism in populism from the 1890s. And uh, I, it, I, I think it was it, 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 that projection of McCarthyism back. I think distorted so much of what was, uh, to use the phrase we've been using in our introduction, the democratic promise of populism. Because after all, what the populists wanted was a government that would respond to needs, to crying needs of the people. Both parties ignored them in quite an, an oligarchic way, as Bernie Sanders says. And uh, they had to create their own party, which ran in 1892, lost, but was one of the most robust showings of a third party in American history. Uh, they had to do that in order to uh, to get their mm. voice heard. Mm. So, Professor Urbanati, let me go to you here. What what do you make of, uh, uh, of this particular definition of populism, that it must include the fact that it, uh, a populist movement may be a danger to democracy? I agree. I agree that it may be a danger to democracy. I also disagree to put everybody who claims to talk in the name of the people or equality, to put them in the basket of populism, because then social democrats are populists, then socialists are populists, which is not true. So we have to make a distinction between a populism as a project of power and the populism as an idea coming from the bottom up, claiming for a democracy that respects the promises of democracy it does. It is naturally anti-oligarchic. Democracy was born against oligarchy. So I don't see in Sanders nothing that is consistent with populism because populism is a project of power. The word ism, 
populism, ism is very important because it implies that a leader uh, uses the people as excluding and including or as expelling or exalting somebody against somebody else in order to propose himself or herself as the true representative of the true people. This is what uh, Sanders never uh, is never done. He never said this is the real people. He says justice. He speaks for equality, which are different discourses. So I would make a distinction between forms of uh, claiming for justice and forms of claiming for populism. Also because only the leader can tell uh, can tell us who is this people he's talking about and why he's talking for that people instead of other people. And if we ask a populist to answer this question, the populists tell us because we are the true one, but doesn't tell us what really they want. They tell us against them, but they never tell us to do what. So populism is an empty basket within which the rhetoric of the leader, uh, the one who wants to have power, for instance, who comes from outside of the political establishment uh, makes uh, in order to propose himself. Mm. This mm. is... Mm. Well, can it truly be such an uh, an empty basket? And, and Professor Mueller, let me turn this one to you, because uh, uh, clearly populist movements take hold and spread because I, I take Professor Ubernati's point very well about the sort of uh, uh, narcissism, the powerful um, charismatic narcissism of a populist leader. But the movement takes hold because it's responding to some deeply held belief or need amongst the populi, amongst the people. And one of those beliefs or needs is that the elite of their nations are not responding to the needs of the people. They're not providing um, a, a nation of, uh, you know, of care and equality to the people. And I wonder if part of the reason why uh, m- many elites, and if we could be completely honest, uh, in m- modern day America, I've got uh, a vaunted historian in Jack Beatty. I myself am a member of the media and I've got two uh, celebrated professors here we need to be honestly considering ourselves a member of the quote-unquote elite, is part of the problem is that the populists just don't like the elite, Professor Mueller. Allow me to make two points, which will also sound horribly pedantic. So again, it's not the people who are captured by populist leaders. It's particular groups. There's nothing wrong with appealing to the forgotten. There's nothing wrong with saying that existing arrangements might be bad for certain parts of the population. And it would be crazy in retrospect to say, oh, whatever, let's say, Chavez in Venezuela or Erdogan in Turkey ever said about forgotten parts of the population was crazy and they shouldn't have said this. That's all fine. What's not fine is to basically buy into this division between the people and the elites. Donald Trump never even captured a majority of the American people. So it's a bit strange to now say that he somehow was able to appeal to the people. He was able to appeal to certain parts of the people. And secondly, again, very pedantic, forgive me, the elite is not a homogeneous phenomenon. They're very different forms of elite actors. And if, again, you, you allow a Trump example, when he presented his cabinet, if I remember correctly, the combined worth was about $4.3 billion. Now, that's a bit strange for somebody who, you know, says, look, I am your voice and I will do something for the forgotten. 
But who were these people? Well, they were mostly for shorthand Wall Street types. And that's, make, that's very different from professionals like journalists, lawyers, God forbid professors, who kind of claim a certain authority on the basis of specialized training and education. It's very easily, very easy to mobilize right-wing resentments against professionals as a particular kind of elite. Whereas very often the very rich get off by saying, look, you know, I made my own money. Uh, Trump himself, of course, said, you know, I can't be corrupted because I have enough money myself. So elite is a very slippery term. And again, we should be careful not to repeat how populists present themselves because we slip in certain assumptions that, you know, they genuinely represent ordinary people. No, they don't necessarily. And they've nowhere really come to power in Western Europe, with the exception of Italy that maybe Nadia wants to say more about, mm -hmm. without the help of very established conservative elites. It's never just, you know, parts of quote unquote ordinary people who help them into power. It's always the Republican establishment, right wing conservatives in parts of Europe who ultimately say, yeah, we are going to bring these people into government. Jack Beattie, uh Professor Mueller used the word never there. Do you agree? <laughs> well, never. Uh, I think that's what Jane Austen called the never of conversation. Uh, the, um, the, you know, it, it, this business of uh, populism and Trump, I think uh, Martin Wolf of the Financial Times has it right. He says Trumpism is Pluto-populism. After all, look at the 2017 tax cut. Each... Uh, of the Koch brothers got a half a billion more dollars a year as a result of that tax cut. That was that was just that's a giveaway to the to the plutocrats. Uh, so there's a kind of mislabeling, I think, that that is very useful for Trump because he can see say I'm I'm the Tribune of the Common Man or or uh, uh, you know Hannity <laughs> Sean Hannity who makes forty seven million dollars a year can say I'm standing up for you, but the truth is that's a that's what. Um, uh, uh, you know, Ross Perot called gorilla dust. You throw that in people's eyes and they can't see the real truth. The real truth being the Republican Party is the party of, of well, the Koch brothers. Mm. Well, I want to go back to something that, uh, that all of you mentioned, that one uh, common trait in populism uh, around the world is the populist leaders claim to represent, quote unquote, you know, the real people. We heard, you know, from Sarah Palin long ago, uh, that phrase of real Americans over and over and over again. And forms of that have um, have come up more recently. For, for example, here is Donald Trump's uh, inaugural address in January of 2017. Um, you might remember it as the American carnage speech, but uh, Professor Urbanati, there's a specific point which we'll play right now uh, that really caught your ear. Today's ceremony, however, has very special meaning because today we are not merely transferring power from one administration to another or from one party to another, but we are transferring power from Washington, D.C., and giving it back to you, the people. For too long, a small group in our nation's capital has reaped the rewards of government while the people have borne the cost. Professor Urbanati, what was it about that moment in his speech that caught your attention? 
very interesting moment because of uh, this word you use two times, merrily. This is not merrily a government like uh, other previous ones. This is not merrily a majority substituting for another one. Precisely the opposite. A democracy based on elections and a constitution is merrily one majority after another one. But Trump, like all populists, uh, my countries and elsewhere, they had the same experience. They always pretend that their own majority special is not like the other ones because they don't consider the majority rule as an important fundamental rule of democracy. For them, majority is the name of a collective majority or a social majority that is the good people versus the other uh, who are are not good, presumably. So it is as if uh, a member of civil society, I would say so, that is for them is not simply the elite, but is the political class against which they mobilize all the leaders, populist leaders, they come from outside the political class. They say outside the establishment, they declare to be the real civil society, people working, making money, success with their own hands and brains. Uh, And they claim for this reason to, to have the legitimacy of talking for the real majority of the people, not merely the one that receive a majority of votes. This is an important switch uh, Mm. that the populists make, uh, all of them, from formal rulers or formal uh, procedures to substantive conceptions. So not the majority rule, but the rule of the majority. I see. So the, the word specifically that you um, that you highlighted was was merely when he says it's yeah, a... Merely yeah, merely is yes. a crucial, yeah? Okay, and, and you're saying that it, that it's nothing, there's nothing mere about it at all, that it's no, well outside the, the norms of a functioning democracy. Jack, exactly. we've got a, a minute before we have to take our next break. Your thoughts on what Professor Urbinati just said? Yes, that that business of excluding people, of of, of you know making a, a distinction between the sort of symbolic um, and conjured majority and the mere electoral majority, uh, Professor Muller shows how that is one of the constants of populism, going back really to pre to pre-Nazi days, where you know it was the the conjured people that were above the the, the mere people that voted. And I think you hear that after all, didn't Trump sort of say what the people voted? He didn't agree with it. <laughs> you know, he, uh, he he throws democracy off the kill. I mean, he, he, no democracy for Trump because the real people are behind him. Right. And you point out a, tre- uh, a, a, a tweet by, uh, by Trump in the past where he tweeted, the only important thing is the unification of the people because the other people don't mean anything. Well, this is the first episode of our special series where we're taking a look at the power of populism. I'm joined today by Jack Beatty, Nadia Urbinati, and Jan Werner Mueller, and we'll have more in just a moment. This is On Point. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. 
I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today it's episode one of a terrific series that we're bringing you called The Power of Populism. It's global reach, authoritarian danger, and democratic promise. And today we're focusing on what makes a leader a populist leader. And I'm joined today by Jack Beatty. He's On Point's news analyst. Jan Werner Mueller joins us as well. He's a professor at Princeton University and an author of many books, including What is Populism? And Nadia Urbinati is with us. She's a professor at Columbia University and author of books, including Me the People, How Populism Transforms Democracy. Now, today in episode one, we've been focusing a lot on populism in America. In episode two, we'll be talking about populism around the world. And here's an example. This is former Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi in 2010 at a motorcycle show in Milan. Don't read newspapers anymore. Don't read them because they cheat on you. This last situation, for instance, is a paper storm. At the end, you'll see how what happened will turn out to be nothing else apart from an act of solidarity by the Prime Minister. An act of solidarity that I would have been ashamed not to carry out, but that I carried out because I always do, because that's the way I am. As always, I work unceasingly, and if I occasionally happen to look a beautiful girl in the face, it's better to like beautiful girls than to be gay. A translator there um, explaining what former Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi said back in 2010. Now, Professor Urbinati, in your book, um, the Me, Me, the People, you talk about how populist leaders um, are leaders beyond parties. What did you mean by that? Because, as uh, I started saying uh, uh, earlier on, they come from civil society in the name of uh, regaining power to the people versus the political class that uh, stole the power from the people. So, uh, and thus they criticize political parties. Either they conquer parties from inside, this is what uh, Trump uh, has done with the Republicans, or in the case of Berlusconi, he constructed, actually he bought his own party, he created his own party with his own money, and in order to make the party do what he wants the party to do. So uh, the party for them is a means to achieve uh, power and not a place or a, 
an organ or a system thanks to which uh, people can uh, develop their own ideas, interests, and thus compete for a representative uh, uh, democracy. In this sense, we saw uh, in Europe uh, clearly that the more parties uh, decline in uh, relevance in relation to the ability they have to organize and to represent the people, the more populist leaders uh, took over. So there is a relationship between decline of party democracy and uh, increasing possibility for uh, populist leaders. Mm, mm. Well, we're going to talk more about sort of democracy as a potential um, sort of ironically a fomenting ground for populism. But Professor Mueller, let me turn back to you for a moment because it suddenly occurs to me that uh, we've been pulled towards, for obvious reasons, talking about populism in the U.S., populism uh, in in Europe um, and how that's played out over some time. But suddenly, I I was thinking about frequently, there are governments in uh, Latin America that have been... uh, coined as or as termed as left-wing populists who very frequently do not arise from the billionaire classes in Latin America. I mean, uh, so does that mean that there isn't always this uh, this sort of uh, beyond the parties uh, uh, thrust to a populist leader, as uh, Professor Urbinati is pointing out? So I would agree with Professor Robinati that there is a connection between the rise of populism and how parties evolve. I wouldn't say that populist leaders necessarily always come from outside parties, but certainly they will run their own parties if they have one. Some of them don't. Bolsonaro was president for a while without having any party whatsoever. But if they have the party, they will basically run their own party in a highly autocratic way. And I think, again, it comes down to this core feature of anti-pluralism. If you say that only you represent the people, how would you tolerate any other voices, any other kind of pluralism? On Latin America specifically, so sometimes the contrast is drawn between so-called inclusionary populism in Latin America and exclusionary populism in other parts of the world. I don't find that particularly helpful because, again, we might simply be talking about socialism, social democracy, as Professor Robinati already, already explained. And if it doesn't have this element of exclusion – which some of them do do certainly have. So if you think about Chavez and today Maduro in Venezuela, no disagreement is tolerated. If you, if you disagree with figures like this, you are a traitor to the country. If you see that phenomenon, if you see political opponents treated like this, if no legitimate opposition is recognized, then we're talking about populism, at least in the sense of the word that I'm trying to, to, to advance in order to give us a more precise understanding of certain phenomena and not have this sort of very global term where everybody who's ever said anything nice about the people or ordinary people is suddenly a populist. Because then on one level, we're all populists. Mm. So, Professor Urbinati, about uh, Professor Mueller's point regarding that that, that uh, the kind of populism that he's talking about embraces an anti-democratic um, modus operandi. Do, what do you see in, in, in Latin American populism? Is it similar to other forms of populism worldwide? Well, the Latin American populism is a kind of uh, the cradle of populism. They started the experimentation of different forms of populism, and I think it's very connected. It's not me. I mean, scholars have uh, shown that the populist experience in Latin America is very much connected to the constructions of the people as the sovereign 
agent of the nation or of the state, which was a different process uh, than in Europe. And in these constructions of the unity of the people in relation to, uh, you know, uh, different kind of populations uh, from uh, immigrants to colonizers or uh, Native Americans, all together to construct the people, that was for a time being a moment of unifications under a leader. Could be a kind of military leader, you know, the caudillo, or could be a uh, inspiring uh, rhetorician kind of rhetorical kind of leader. That is a process that is peculiarly connected to the tradition of the America, or Latin America. We have to connect the people all the time, populism, with the specific tradition of his country. So, a, a, a populist can have specificity that are different from other kind of populists because it speaks a language, it uses the um, the terms uh, that uh, the, the, the the people or the public opinion of his own country understands. So it's not globally in the in the global in the sense of flat and without uh, distinctions. Mm. It's very important to consider those distinctions. Mm. So Jack, I, I want to spend the rest of the the conversation um, trying to understand what the causes of contemporary populism might be. I mean, it seems to me that all the examples that we've discussed are populist movements that have emerged in democracies. So is, is is there some kind of irony here that democracy may be a prerequisite to, to populism, Jack? Well, it seems to be. It's that democracies not living up to their promise. I think that's that's the key. You know, someone said America isn't a tragedy, it's a disappointment. Uh, people are disappointed, they're disenchanted with democracy. It promises so much, and for so many, it delivers so little, either economically or in terms of uh, representing their views. You know, a study uh, of the U.S. Senate in the 90s found that uh, uh, basically uh, most of the legislation passed and most of the attention was for the top richest people in the country, middle class people a little bit, a third of the country, nothing from these senators. They just didn't exist. That's 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 the kind of thing that that creates populism being ignored. And I think for many bigoted people, and I'll be clear about that, they felt their views were being ignored until Trump came along and said, no, no, uh, I'm with you. We can say we hate political correctness. We don't want to defer to anybody. It's a great white country. Mm. Well, um, let's hear a little bit about how that populist rhetoric is, you know, uh, pervading through the uh, much of the the Republican Party. Here's Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene on Lindell TV last month. It's a conservative talk show. Uh, And this was just days before uh, Donald Trump was recently arraigned in New York. Real America sees Washington, D.C. as the enemy. And if they indict President Trump on fake charges to go after him to try to stop the the movement that they cannot stop, he is going to win 2024 in a landslide victory. And then we'll put him in the White House and he will finish what he started. We will 
gut the government of all the traitors that are serving the globalists in America last. Professor Mueller, what do you think of this notion that a democracy uh, fails or disappoints uh, a critical mass of people, and that's one of the things that allows populism some purchase? So clearly, there has to be something going on that allows the rhetoric of certain populist leaders to resonate and be successful. But again, I think it would be a mistake to now equate populism with critiques of globalization, with you know so-called grievances that are economic. This is not new. This, again, is completely legitimate, but it's different from the kind of thing we just heard. What we just heard is a division between the real people, which implies some people are unreal or, as you know, was also clearly spelled out, are actually traitors. And that is specific to populism. And that might be easier in situations that have less to do with the economy than with situations where you either already have some kind of sense of culture war or certain divisions which can be culturally or to put it more bluntly racially charged in certain ways. That makes it easier for populists who of course always talk about unifying the people to do what they actually want to do which is to divide the people. They are for shorthand kind of polarization entrepreneurs and for that very often cultural divides are more useful than economic divides. Okay, so then comes the critical question. You've written about how the the populist claim is that there is a singular people of which the populist is the only representative. Um, And so therefore fomenting those divides is a means by which to prove that they are the, the sole representative. For anyone who cares about the preservation of a democracy, what is the effective counter-argument to that claim? One counterclaim is that contrary to the kind of, forgive me, communitarian kitsch that we so often hear in our conversation today, which is, oh, we have to overcome all our divisions, we have to heal as a country. No, democracy is about conflict. Conflict is not illegitimate in a democracy. The question is how we talk about conflict. If you do what populists do, which is to basically deny the standing of other citizens completely, if you tell them to I won't repeat the word that Trump used, but you know what I'm talking about when I say go back to your own countries. When you basically say, I'm not even going to get into a conflict with you because you don't belong here. You're not American. You're un-American, as Trump very often also called critics. You can't resolve conflicts or deal with conflicts in a democratic, in a democratic manner. That's something that I know sounds very abstract, but I think it can be realized in ordinary talk in people basically saying, look, we, can, we somehow have to live with our disagreements. Uh, they're not all going to go away, but let's be more conscious of how we talk about other people, how we address them, how we basically don't go for this politics of complete exclusion. I have to say, uh, Professor Mueller, explain for another 30 seconds because I don't quite understand. Are you saying that um, I just don't quite understand? This is, explain more. So if, if, if you have a disagreement or a conflict around ideas, interests, identities for that, for that matter, you can say, look, what's, what's, what's the issue here? What, what is the substance of our conflict? You have arguments. I have arguments. We can, we can debate them. And eventually they'll be, they'll be resolved on the basis, as Professor Robinati explained, of the majority principle. And by the way, you also then can't question that outcome in the way that populists so often do when they lose an election by saying, but look, you know, we, we of course, represent the silent majority. If we don't win, that means the majority must have been silenced. Ergo, it was rigged and so on. So there's a kind of pattern there as, as, as well. 
Um, but that's that's a normal way of dealing with conflict. If I say to you, look, you're not a real American. I'm not even going to talk to you. You have no place here. You should go back to your own country. Then I don't quite see how that's compatible with a democratic way of addressing conflicts and disagreements. Okay. That's the difference I'm trying to get at. Okay. So, Professor Urbanati, though, we have just about a minute left here. How is the kind of uh, counter-argument that Professor Mueller is proposing possible in a country where the populists are actually the ones in power? Because by definition, they do not believe in a pluralism of belief. So wouldn't what uh, Professor Mueller is saying fall on deaf ears? I think uh, Mueller, Professor Mueller is completely right. I agree with him. And the question is that, as we know, there is no such a thing as the people. The people is a purely political construction. It's not like a nation that you can have different languages, religion. You can define them. But the people is a very political construction, which means that there are ways, different ways of doing so. And there are populists who want to tell us there is only one people. They have the kind of the myth of the one with the capital O, uh, the one, whereas the people is plural. It's plural in ideas, it's plural in interests, it's plural in race, uh, even in accent of uh, way of talking like me. So it means that uh, the only way to live together peacefully in a, in a democracy in which there is plurality inside because there is freedom of expressing plurality, the only way to solve our conflict is assuming that they are never solvable forever, once forever, and thus we count to our votes. Majority rules. If the majority can express its will, for sure, which is a big if right now in American politics. Well, this was episode one of our special series, The Power of Populism, its global reach, authoritarian danger, and democratic promise. And Professor Nadia Urbinadi at Columbia University and author of Me, the People, How Populism Transforms Democracy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. And Jan Werner Mueller, professor at Princeton and author of What is Populism? Great pleasure to have you, Professor Mueller. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And Jack Beatty, On Point News Analyst and the brains behind this series. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you, Magna. Up next in episode two, we're going to talk about populism globally and specifically in the world's largest democracy. That's in our next episode of our special series, The Power of Populism. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. On Point.